0: Hello, and welcome back to The Economics Review. Our guest today is a senior scholar at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequalities, most known for his work on income distribution and inequality. Previously, the lead economist in the World Bank's research department for almost 20 years, his award-winning books entitled Global Inequality and Capitalism Alone discuss income inequality across the world in an era of globalization. Holding a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Belgrade, he was named among the top 50 thinkers in the world by Prospect magazine. It's my great honor to welcome to the show Dr. Branko Milanovic. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Adi. It's actually a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners.
0: Firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background.
1: Well, I, as you said, actually, I've been working on income inequality for a long time. I started even the work on income inequality with my dissertation at the University of Belgrade in 1987, which is quite a few years back. And then I did work at the World Bank, which actually really dealt mostly with East European countries, including Russia in the 90, in the early 1990s and Poland. Um, and then I started working really on global inequality because I was, I think, to a large extent, lucky to be in a unit of the World Bank and Research Department that uh, was uh, gathering the data or was having or had access to household surveys from all around the world. That's, by the way, the unit that produces the famous $1 per person per day poverty line. Uh, so that's when my work on global inequality started. It was in uh, 1999, the first paper on it. And then I continued working on, the, on, on that topic, as you mentioned. And uh, my last book is Capitalism Alone, which is broader because it has some not only income distribution aspects, but also political
0: Right. Um, So I'd like to start off today by asking um, why we should care about inequality at all and not just poverty. If we can focus on ensuring that everyone has access to a good standard of living and that the poor are actively being lifted out of poverty worldwide, as they have been in the past few decades, um, then why should it matter that some people are earning more than others?
1: Yes. Let me divide that question about first inequality within countries like within a single country like the U.S., And inequality globally, because they're really, as as you will see, actually, they're different. Uh, People often ask, like, why do I care really if if Bezos now has, uh, you know, 250 billion? Doesn't make any difference to me. And it's true, actually, you know, my income and, you know, I don't look at his income and wealth doesn't really affect me directly. But let me give you three reasons why I think people uh, are concerned, and I think rightly so. Uh, First, there are actually increasing number of studies that shows that if you have high inequality in a country, like let's suppose the U.S., then uh, eventually your rate of growth sort of becomes less, you know, decelerates. In other words, that, you know, incomes of everybody then are affected. And the reasons for that are either social instability or political instability or the fact that many people who are in the lower income brackets cannot really, uh, they are born to poorer parents, they cannot really go to the schools or sufficiently long stay in schools in order to actually contribute much more to society to themselves. So that's the first really instrumental reason. Uh, Then the second reason is linked to that is really inequality of opportunity. As I already mentioned, some people uh, simply do not have the opportunities to get ahead simply because, for example, tuition is expensive, housing is very expensive, compared to their incomes. So, you know, you have again, this inequity, which actually starts with where you're born, what are your parents and so forth. And uh, uh, then the, the last reason is maybe, uh, no, let, let me say, there was another one. It's actually, uh, one is sort of essentially philosophical that we are basically all equal individuals and every increase in inequality has to be somehow sort of explained or adju- or made acceptable. And I think that was the John Rawls principle, the difference principle, which translated means essentially that you can have increased inequality only to the extent that it might benefit the poor. And final reason is a political. So with high inequality, obviously the people who are very rich have much more political influence and then democracy gets transformed into plutocracy.
0: Okay. Um, so I think putting aside the the political side for now, um, just focusing on the the economics of it, um, I think a lot of what you said focused around um, people at the, the lower end of the income spectrum not being able to afford education or necessities or all sorts of things. So um, that, that I think that sort of assumes that the economy is like a zero-sum game, where if, if Bezos is very rich then, you know, I can't be rich as well or I can't have a good standard living. If everybody can afford the necessities and education, um, then, then does it still matter that, uh, you know, there are some very high earners um, and, and some people who earn relatively less?
1: Well, I agree that actually at some point in the society we extraordinarily rich so that everybody would be able to acquire everything, uh, as you were like mentioning, you know, very good housing, very good education, um uh, very good standard of living and so on. yes, in that case, you can say, well, really, the fact that actually there is inequality at the top does not matter. but first, this is very unlikely because with development of society, you simply have increased needs, so there are new products that have been created and you know, if you have that, then what seems to you like an acceptable standard of living like 10 years ago or 15 or 50 years ago is not really something which is any longer acceptable today. So we obviously require more today. And I think the fact that that implicit poverty line goes up with the development of society makes it more difficult to have everybody above that poverty line with very high inequality. So, you know, You know, saying, for example, look at uh, the Danish society. Denmark is very often, as you know, used as a sort of a paragon of uh, of a rich and uh, rich society. It really is rich and has low poverty rate, mostly, principally, because it is not very unequal.
0: Okay. Um, and so I think just off the cuff here, um, I, I was thinking as you were talking about so, sort of a hypothetical situation in this sort of you know, utopian society, um, we were thinking about where, okay, let's say we had a, a rich society um, and somehow we could magically take all of the, the wealth, all of the um, income in, the, in a society and make sure everybody gets it evenly, right? Everybody gets a, a completely equal um, portion of the pie. And so I think um, just just a, a power law dynamic would take place then where um, you know in in ten years or fifteen years or twenty years, uh, most of that income, if not you know virtually all of it, would concentrate itself again in the top one percent or the top five percent or the top ten percent. Um, Because, you know, obviously there is not just inequality in terms of income. There's also vast uh, disparity in terms of effort. Some people are a lot more hardworking than others. Some people are a lot smarter than others. Um, You know, some people are more fortunate than others. You know, some people are just born exceptionally tall. And so they have a shot in the NBA and they can become rich based on just that that factor alone. So just because humans are so different um, in their abilities and their skills, um, don't you think that in, in a few years time, even if we could level this all out without just constantly taking away wealth and redistributing it, that we would all just end up with the same inequality once again?
1: No. First of all, on, on the first point, I think you're there mixing up really very different reasons for inequality. And I think it's useful to go back to John Romer who distinguishes between exogenous reasons to inequality and those that have to do with effort. And the third one is what he calls the episodic luck. So let me distinguish them. The first ones, which are actually not under your individual control and which lead to inequality, which you actually mentioned some, are the reasons where you are born and how rich are your parents, and also, to some extent, your intellectual or maybe physical abilities. These are really things that are given to you. Society should adjust for that. Now, very clearly, it needs to adjust for inequality, which comes to inequity, which comes from the background. Whether it should also adjust for inequity that comes from the difference in some sort of innate skills is a different topic. and I think current societies cannot adjust that, but a society which is sufficiently rich would be able to adjust. So this is the first group. The second group is inequality, which is due to effort, and that's a good inequality. So, there is a good inequality and a bad inequality. The first one was a bad inequality. And the third inequality is what, what Romer called episodic luck. It's just simply something that cannot be adjusted. So, it is you just are lucky to actually graduate at the time when there is a demand for your level of skills, and then you get the job. So, that's what I want to make. And people should really distinguish the first group of inequality, which is not due to your effort, but is given to you exogenously from the place where you're born and the parents that you were born that type of inequality should be reduced as much as possible
0: so just to make sure i understand this right if we could in some sort of future utopian society achieve perfect Mm -hmm. equality of opportunity um, where everybody has the same access to education and the same access to you know extremely high um, income mobility um, so to say in a society um, then the the unequal distributions of income at the end of that would matter a lot less or not at all potentially Exactly. I mean, if you could
1: theoretically, and I think there is, of course, you can imagine a utopian society like that, that we are fully able to adjust for inequality of opportunity and, of course, make then really social mobility almost fully fluid. Actually, society would be fluid. You would just move up and down depending on your effort and episodic luck. Yes, in that case, of course, inequality would be fully, I would say, justified because the background institutions or the background starting positions are the same. Uh, Now, I want to say, obviously, that society is not something which we you know, experience in real life, but I think it's useful to have a sort of an idea in, in front of your mind what type of inequalities should be adjusted for and what type of inequalities should be allowed. And let me just say one further point on that because many people sometimes think actually either we are having inequality or we are having equality. I think this is a misunderstanding. Inequality is a continuous variable, so it's like the temperature. So if we say we would like to reduce inequality, that doesn't mean that we want really to go from a very hot climate to freeze everybody. It simply means that current inequality is too high and it should be reduced by two or three points. You know, I'm talking about Gini points which is a measure of inequality or any other top 1%. It doesn't mean that everybody has to have the same income.
0: Right. And so um, just following up from this, uh, next I wanted to ask you about the way inequality um, in terms of incomes actually plays out in the real world. So as I understand it, When the top 1% or the highest earners receive their paycheck, they can either spend it, save it or invest it um if they spend it it goes right back into the economy um you think they go and buy a yacht or a purse or whatever um it's just going back into businesses going back into the global economy so if they save it in a bank um, for example then the bank can lend out i think something like 90 percent of that um to other people to buy houses start businesses go to school um, etc and if they invest it um for example in a company a startup um, in the stock market then it fuels innovation jobs economic growth and all these positive externalities so in that sense, um, no matter if the rich earn a lot more than others, it seems to me that no matter what they do with it, um, it just ends up right back in the economy. So why should we care that they earn more initially?
1: Yes, that's true. But, you know, if you also had sort of middle-income people also earn more, that would also end up in the economy. Actually, the economy is a circle of flow. Nobody actually makes the money in order to burn that money. I mean, people either invest, as you said, actually, either save or invest or consume, but these three activities are not only done by the rich, they're done by the middle class. And even uh, you can actually argue, and people have argued that that by having too concentrated income distribution, which means lots of money in hands of the rich, that you the consumption actually is affected in the sense, like let's look at a very simple example, which may not be entirely true, but it's, it's again, a useful paradigm to kind of, or metaphor rather, to think about. Uh, let's suppose that you have really uh, lots of income in the hands of the rich and there are not sufficient investment opportunities. So basically then, as it happened before the crisis of 2008, you basically have uh, rich who are trying to find like desperately outlets for the money that they have. And actually, as you know, it happened that eventually the banks were lending to anybody who could actually just show up. And on the other hand, if that money were actually in the hands of the middle class, they would be consuming real goods and services and actually fueling the economy. So that argument you made, actually, the opposite can be very easily made.
0: Okay. um, But then I think just looking back a bit to history over the past 50 years, um, companies like Apple, Amazon, Google… Um, Facebook, every major company that's um, driven innovation, that's that's created millions of jobs, um, you know, uh, and just overall benefit benefited the economy in tremendous ways. They were all funded by uh, ultra wealthy individuals, you know, uh, multimillionaires or billionaires. Um, that, that have the kind of capital to make angel investments that the middle class can never really make. Um, so, you know, the middle class may be able to put their money in the stock market. They may be able to buy real estate or something. Um, but that sort of huge angel investment uh, venture capital that, that drives new innovation, that drives new companies, that drives all of the innovation we've seen virtually in the past um, 40 or 50 years. Um, what, what would happen to that? Well, uh, you
1: know, I cannot tell you like obviously like each individual case, but let me also push back on that. Uh, uh, I've actually listened and read uh, parts of the book of Mariana Matsukato, which actually argues that what you just explained is only partially true. Uh, lots of innovation was actually driven, believe it or not, and actually she has the numbers to show you, uh, was driven by essentially government investments, which are due in, even in internet and other things, which are essentially driven by military needs and the development of new technology. So many of these people that you mentioned who have become billionaires, uh, have originally actually started with large money and grants and others from, believe it or not, whom? Government. So, you know, even that sort of idea that everything is being created through the rich people and angel investor, I think it's, it's oftentimes true, but it's not always true.
0: Okay. Um, and so next, I wanted to move on and talk to you a bit about the impact of location of birth and residence on income and inequality. So you've talked uh, in the past about how this was not a particularly important factor up until a few decades ago when it became sort of the most important determinant of a person's income. So Dr. Milanovic, could you please tell us a bit more about the extent to which one's location of birth and residence impacts income um, and how relative purchasing power changes this equation and whether location will continue to be an important factor in determining income income over the next couple of decades?
1: So you see, this question really falls extremely well. The one, not exactly the one before, but the one before that, uh, when we discuss the role of so-called exogenous factors that individuals cannot influence. When you move from the level of nation-state, well, location does also matter because it matters to you also if you are born to the same income parents, whether you're born maybe in a in a city compared to the countryside. So it does matter, but not overwhelmingly. But when you move to the global level, and that was of course we started with the discussion and the distinction, distinction rather between the global level and the within national level. So when you move to the global level, that becomes a huge element which now which largely overwhelms all the other elements. So whether you're born in the United States or you're born in Mali, matters enormously for your lifetime income and for your prospects. So that element of exogeneity of what is given to you at birth uh, becomes really the dominant element in terms of your overall, as I said before, overall income. So what are the numbers there? You know the numbers that I did. Uh, 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 that was the work that I did uh, some about ten years ago, and that might have somewhat changed, uh, but not the order of magnitude. So just to give you an order of magnitude, uh, if you take lifetime incomes of in, in individuals in the world and adjust that for the differences in the purchasing power of the currency, which essentially means the differences in price levels between poorer countries and richer countries. You end up with a sort of conclusion that about 50 percent to 60 percent of that lifetime income depends on the place where you were born, meaning the country you're born. The, because I don't have the detailed numbers, so like exactly like uh, you know in what place in a country. But 50 to 60 percent depends on the country one is born. Then 20 percent depends on the parental background that we were talking about previously, and then the remainder, which is like about 30 percent, depends on what we said also before, effort or episodic luck. So that's actually the breakdown of that. Now, with the rise of uh, uh, very populous countries like uh, like China, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, and so on, whose incomes have risen compared to the uh, current, I mean, rich countries like the United States or, or Europe. Uh, The fact that actually there are so many people who have improved their position means that gradually that locational element becomes less important. Just to give you an intuition, the locational element between China and the US in 1980 was enormous, but location element still is very significant in favor of the US, but it's less now than it used to be. So we do have some uh, decline in that locational element, but it's still a preponderant factor in your lifetime income.
0: Right. And so as countries um, get richer and richer over the next 50 or 60 years, that factor should then continue to decrease and decrease even further.
1: Yes. You know, if we have and I think actually when we look at the future, we can actually relatively easily imagine the future where um, incomes in the large Asian countries that I mentioned become more or less the same as incomes in, uh, in Europe and the United States, and then the locational element would dec- de- uh, de- decrease. However, one has to take that gets a little bit complicated, more complicated by the introduction of Africa, where the rate of population growth is certainly going to be the highest of all parts of the world. And Africa is quite poor place. I mean, I'm talking broadly. Obviously, there are differences, large differences between the countries. Africa has 55 countries. So like many people, I, I don't want to be accused of kind of, you know, talking with very broad brush. But African continent, Sub-Saharan Africa is relatively poor. And unless that part of the world actually grows, I mean, very substantially, then we might not have the decline in the locational premium in the sense that we are currently envisaging simply by looking at Asian countries in Europe and the United States. So that's a, that's really an issue for the next 20 or 30 years.
0: Um, so next, I wanted to ask you about your immigration proposal, proposal which calls for greater um, freedom of movement for labor to counter global inequality, um, which has become quite widely discussed and, and controversial. So I wanted to give you a chance to explain the, that solution and tell us about why you um, believe it's favorable to current systems.
1: Yes, you know, the solution is, as you said, controversial, and it's not really something that I've invented, it does exist already in several countries in one form or another. But I have to explain a little bit the background to that. And of course I will explain very briefly what the proposal says. And it's actually not a very specific proposal because I don't think there is a point in going in specific in details because that would obviously depend on different countries how they would like to implement it. But the idea is the following. Uh, based on what we have said and talked about locational premium, I think it is obvious that if you had a fully free movement of labor, you would have reduction in global poverty and you would have also reduction in global inequality. Kind of, I mean, Countries that are actually relatively poor, and there is no, you know, future for people, they would actually people would leave. They would go to the the richer countries. The mean incomes would start sort of readjusting in some sense, and you would actually have definitely decline in global poverty, and as as I said, decline in global inequality. So that looks really great. Now, the problem is politically, you know, individuals, people are not simply sort of uh, uh, avatars that can be just moved between the countries without provoking any other effects. And they do provoke when they migrate to other countries, they provoke at least two effects. They might have an effect on wages and incomes of people in whose categories they actually work or compete with. And there may be a sort of a a political or a cultural element which has actually found its resonance in in right-wing parties that they believe that that they would like to have, not to have a cultural or whatever you can call it, plurality, but rather to have societies where the differences in, in types of cultures they have or religion are relatively small. So then you have a political issue. You have on one hand, good thing about migration, which is really economic. And then on the other hand, you have uh, political problems of selling that. So I, uh, the, the proposal that I have is essentially to, we have to acknowledge the political issues. And essentially you say to the people who are arguing that side of the, of the equation, you say, okay, would you be willing to actually let immigration increase by X? on the assumption that these migrants have fewer civic rights, not actually any fewer rights in terms of their job, wages, and other things, but they would not have an open path to, for example, citizenship. But they would have to return to the country where they came from within five years. And then you know they would come also to the country only if they have original jobs. And that's a little bit like what Singapore is doing and the Gulf countries as well. And actually, rich countries are also by adjusting migration on, uh, on on so-called points system where only more skilled migrants get uh, uh, accepted. So that was essentially my idea of a trade-off. So uh, acknowledge the political reality and do have uh, some sort of limits to what, are be, what will be the path to citizenship for people to migrate and make them stay only a given number of years or limited time. And I know that it is not it is not a system that many people agree with because they believe that we should have really immigration, which on the one side that would be fully free. But the danger is by pushing for that, you might actually lead to a reduction in migration. Because the other side of the political spectrum that is against migration might actually then, as in the case of Europe, might stop or try to stop migration altogether. So this is the compromise solution that I outlined. And as I said, I know it is controversial, but I try to explain the rationale or the reasoning rather behind it.
0: Okay, and so finally, I wanted to give you a chance to talk um, about your new book, Capitalism Alone, in which you discuss the variations of capitalist systems uh, across the world and how they affect inequality. So could you please tell us a bit more about the role that these differences play and what, in your view, is the right course of action that can be realistically undertaken by individual governments, um, in addition to the immigration proposal, of course, to adjust their model of capitalism in the most advantageous manner?
1: Yes, the book uh, deals... uh broadly speaking with two models of capitalism. One is liberal or meritocratic capitalism, where meritocratic is actually not used in the current sort of common Sense like uh, that is something like according to the (coughs) uh, sort of uh, according to the contributions of people. But meritocratic is simply used in a way that John Rawls used it, which simply means that there is no legal impediments to anybody reaching any position in society. In other words, you don't have a system of you know clergy, nobility, ordinary people. It existed in the French before the French Revolution. You don't have aristocracy. You don't have caste system. So basically, everybody can reach. Legally, any position. So that's the system that U.S. I think is a good exemplar and obviously many other countries. But for the reasons of data and the fact that U.S. is the biggest country, I actually use um, American data quite a lot. On the other hand, the other system is what I call political capitalism, which some people also call state capitalism, which is the system of China. And I explained in the book why empirically, when you look at the Chinese GDP and the employments, why China is a capitalist country, because essentially it uses 80% of the GDP is produced in the private sector. So I will not expand on, on that. And then I come with a very broad, uh, sort of recommendations in what I think actually uh, liberal capitalism can improve its current income distribution and maybe economic performance. And uh, people who have listened of course to this talk will not be surprised. I actually argue in favor of public education being not only much more widespread because it's already widespread, but much but better than public than private. So that public education, if public education is seen as the top level of education that gives you access to best schools and the best jobs in the future, that means that equalization of opportunity has really gone a big step forward. We talked about that before. So uh, the, the, the second one is making it much more easy for the middle class to invest in acquiring financial some financial assets. Worker ownership is another possibility. The objective there being to introduce some kind of a, what you might call people's capitalism so that increase in the capital share in national income does not translate immediately into inequality as it does now because 90% of um, uh, uh, 90% of financial assets are currently owned by 10% of people. So that concentration really automatically leads to high inequality. The third proposal is one that on migration that we discussed and the fourth one is is a political one is uh, limits and um, uh, or limits to to political contributions or even uh, public funding of the electoral campaigns altogether precisely to avoid the problem that we also mentioned at the very beginning of the rich uh, being able to manipulate or to use political system in their own favor.
0: Right, and I think uh, it's very, very difficult to be against um, many of those solutions, especially the the first and the fourth one, I think. But um, those are all the questions I have for you today. Um,
1: Can I just say one more thing at the very end? I think that all proposals that have to deal with equality of opportunity are very difficult to reject because that equality of opportunity is ideologically acceptable to the right, to the center, and to the left. And I think actually the work on income inequality and, I mean, effective proposals has really to focus on that part.
0: Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um,
1: thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Excellent questions. And I'm very glad that I was able also to kind of make my own uh, uh, views maybe uh, more understandable than sometimes maybe me. Perfect.
0: Perfect. Um, well, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.